Acts chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Well, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us, and brought us to the home of Nasson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, 
some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! So we continue our studies in the book of Acts, and we've come to Acts 21. Having heard the reading, you might think to yourself at first sight, this is a most unpromising chapter. I guess after hearing the reading, you might be saying to yourself, what on earth is Charles going to make of this particular chapter? Well, I firmly believe that God has something important to say to us through this chapter. Personally, I am a, a great reader, I, and I particularly like reading biographies. And uh, when I read a biography, I'm at a stage in life in that I'm far more interested in what he or she has, is than what he or she has done. What I mean is this, I, I want to know what makes the person tick. Some biographies just give you the outside of a person's life, what they did, where they went, etc. But I want to get behind that. I want to get inside the person and feel as they felt and understand things as they understood them. And I think I have uh, the same approach with the Bible. I remember when I read the Gospels at first, I was simply interested in what the man Jesus did. He stilled the storm, he raised the dead, he made the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. But as I got more and more involved in Bible study, I began to be much more interested in the person that Jesus was what he was on the inside, what made him tick, why did he react as he did. And I've been trying to do this with the story of Paul, particularly in the book of Acts. Acts can be merely a list of the places Paul visited, what he did, the miracles that happened. But I find myself asking, what was Paul really like? 
I like to know what he was like on the inside. I like to know what his thought patterns were and why he reacted as he did. Now, with that introduction, I want to suggest that chapter 21 of Acts tells us a very great deal about the man Paul on the inside, what was going on in his own heart. It's a chapter I think I've only ever preached on in 35 years of ministry. And I guess I would not have taken it today unless it was part of the series on Acts that we're doing. Now, that's one advantage of preaching your way through a book. You can't just pick and choose just the nice bits. And I come to this chapter, a chapter like this. I look at it and I say, first of all, why did God put this in the Bible? Yes, it's of historical interest. Yes, it's got some interesting, complicated situations. But what has it got to say to us today in the year 2020? Well, let me say this. I think it's in the Bible because God has got lots to say to us through this chapter. A question to start us going. How far should an individual Christian take the advice of other Christians? How far should I, as a Christian, listen to my fellow Christians when I'm not sure what to do? How far should I follow their advice to do something or not to do something? How far should I listen to them? Now, in this unusual chapter, we have one situation in which Christians plead with Paul not to do something, but he goes right ahead and does it. And then sometime later, we find Christians begging him to do something, and Paul goes right ahead and does it. And on both occasions, both occasions, Paul gets into trouble for the decision he made and things don't work out, humanly speaking, very well. Nor does the Bible in these two situations say on either occasion whether Paul did right or wrong. Life is very much like Acts 21. You don't always know whether you've done the right thing or the wrong thing in the situation. You're not always sure whether you made the right decision. Sometimes you listen to Christians, sometimes you don't. But the way we make those decisions and the way we react to the advice of other Christians reveals a far more important thing, I think. And in chapter 21, it's not so important to study what Paul decided to do as why he decided to do it. Why in the one case he went against Christians pleading and why in the other case he followed it. Now let's look at these two situations and try and unpack them. The first situation, we have to highlight what happened at two towns, Tyre and Caesarea. At both places, Christians pleaded with Paul 
not to go to Jerusalem. But it did no good at all. Paul went straight on. Now, why did Paul ignore what they said? That's the question. Now, in Tyre, Paul met a few Christians and stayed with them for a week. It seems a prophecy was given about what would happen to Paul, and they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. The prophecy clearly was not a prophecy about peace, but about the trouble Paul would face. Problems, difficulties were awaiting for Paul in Jerusalem. And the word came from God that if Paul continued on the journey, he was heading for trouble. But look what Paul says in chapter 5, uh, 21, verse 5. But when our time was up, we left and continued all on our way. Why did Paul go on? The next place they called into was Caesarea, and much the same thing happened. Again, a prophecy was given. This time, the, the person through whom it came is named, a man called Agabus. We met him before in chapter 11, verse 27, whereby the Spirit of God, Agabus, predicted a severe famine and told the Christians to get a fund ready in anticipation of the famine to help their fellow Christians in Judea. That's rather unusual, isn't it? Christians to collect money for a disaster that has not yet happened. But here, Agabus is again mentioned. He takes Paul's belt and binds Paul's hands and feet with it. Once again, a word from God through Christians to Paul. But when they heard this, all of Paul's friends pleaded with him with tears in their eyes, saying, Paul, don't go. And Paul's reaction is, please, stop breaking my heart. You're wearing me down. You're wearing down my resistance. No, I am going. I don't mind if I am bound up. I'm ready to die for Jesus. I am going. Now, why did Paul ignore what these Christians said? I suggest it was because of one very simple reason. It was because of human concern for him that made them say what they said. What God had said was that Paul would be tied up. It was man who was saying, don't go. Now, of course, this saying don't go is an instinctive human reaction. When or where there is danger or trouble, we avoid it. And the assumption was being made by Christians that if God was telling us of trouble ahead, he was doing so so that you could avoid it. Now, the truth is far from that. God was not telling this to Paul to discourage Paul from going, but to encourage Paul, to prepare Paul. So, if you look at what the Bible says about the great trouble coming in the last days before Jesus' return, it tells us a lot about that. 
Why? To prepare us for it, so that we may not be caught unprepared, but we are ready to stand for Christ, whatever may happen to us. So, same with Paul, if God tells trouble is coming, he's not telling you to run away from it. He's telling you so that you may receive courage and strength and prepare for it and seek God's grace to get the anchor down before the storm blows up. And that's what God is doing here with Paul, I think. And when the Christians were pleading with Paul not to go, it was their human concern for him. But for Paul himself, when Christians were concerned about his safety, his health, his comfort, his welfare, he said, nothing doing, I'm going to Jerusalem. You see, in Acts 20, verse 22, Paul says God has told him to go to Jerusalem. These warnings of the Holy Spirit through these other Christians are to prepare me, to encourage me. I'm going up, I've got to go, so please don't deflect me from my purpose. So in this situation... He didn't do what the Christians said because their concern was about him and he was not concerned about himself. I'm reminded of what Jesus did in his own ministry when he, on occasions, was uh, tried to be deflected by his disciples um, from going up and they realised danger was ahead. And sometimes, I think, we have to be on our guard, that the concern of other Christians for our welfare is not a kind of little loophole for the devil to turn us from something God has already told us to do. So let's turn to the second situation. Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He met the Christians there. He told them all that the Lord had done in his missionary journeys. They are thrilled And they all praise God. But then they said, Paul, we have a bit of a problem. We'll not hide anything from you, Paul. And the problem is this. You are a bit of a difficulty for us, a bit of an embarrassment to us, because people will now talk about you because you are here. And what's the problem? Well, it's one that does not affect you and I today. But let me tell you what it was so we understand the story. The problem was the old one of that when you become a Christian, how much of your background do you have to give up? When you come to Christ, how much of your culture do you have to drop? Now for the Gentiles who became Christians, the answer was simple. They had to drop all their idolatry and all their immorality. But when a Jew came to Christ, how much should they drop? Since the average Jew was never guilty of idolatry and God's laws were laws of high morality, how much should a Jew drop? And the answer, surprisingly, is nothing. If a Jew comes to Christ, he can go on being a Jew. The only thing that Paul said clearly and directly is that a Jew becoming a Christian can stay a Jew, but a Jew must never tell a Gentile becoming a Christian 
that that Gentile must become a Jew. That's very clear in Paul's writings. James now says, Paul, your coming to Jerusalem will upset many people because they have heard rumours that you not only tell Gentiles they needn't become Jews, you're also telling Jews they can stop being Jews. Now, this is the thing Paul never did, never said, and never taught. And so James says, for the sake of other Jewish Christians, other Jewish believers in Jesus in Jerusalem, will you please join with four other people in a ceremony, a rite of purification. And that will put you right with everybody as they will see that you are still practicing Jewish culture. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, hold on here, Paul. Aren't you being led straight into compromise? The answer is no, in my opinion. He wasn't. Paul listens to this advice and did what they said. Why? Because for Paul, the unity of Christians was a very important thing. If they told him to do something because of their concern for other Christians, Paul would listen and Paul would cooperate. If they told him to do something because of their concern for him, Paul did not listen. And sometimes we are called to do things that people might misunderstand. People may accuse us of being inconsistent, but the things that we are doing are for the sake of the fellowship. Now, Paul listens to the Christians now. He did something which I suppose he could have argued was unnecessary, but he did it because he loved his fellow Christians. So Paul says, I'll do this. I do something I don't need to do, maybe that he didn't even want to do, but he did it because it would help remove the rumours that were spreading and he would set his fellow Christian hearts at rest. So Paul went to the temple, he paid the expense of the four men, he shaved his head, acts which would draw him closer to his fellow Christian Jews, No principle was involved here. The gospel was not being denied, so Paul did it. Now, do you see the difference? Here is a man who would not do anything for his own sake, even at the advice of other Christians, but whose heart could always be touched by appeal to help other Christians and their welfare. So Paul is not inconsistent in his chapter. He's not contradicting himself. He's showing a divine consistency, a complete lack of concern for his own welfare and a total concern for the welfare of his fellow Christians. Now I want to say, isn't that a wonderful, wonderful attitude and a model for us to follow? In one sense... The prophecy was fulfilled. Of course, we're going to find out next week. Paul is arrested and he has to face charges. Paul did get into trouble. Paul is seen in the temple and he was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. But actually he didn't. 
It's very interesting, a little bit of background here. In 1871, I think it was, and 1935, archaeologists discovered blocks of stone in the ruins of Jerusalem, which they found belonged to the wall around the inner temple area, the inner courtyard of the temple. And on one of the stones, it, it had this, this, this quote carved. I quote, No man of alien race, meaning a Gentile, is to enter within the fence that goes around the temple. If anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has only himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. That notice was all around the temple. Gentiles could come into the outer court, but not to the inner court. Now, Paul had preached that in Christ, that wall of partition is down and it's gone. There is no division now. However, Paul did not violate that law of his day, although they accused him of doing so. He had not taken a Gentile in. He was being falsely accused. I guess you could say in spirit he'd broken down, he'd broken that law by preaching that in Christ, for both Jew and Gentile, Jesus was the Saviour, the Lord, the Messiah. But in practice, Paul did not break that law. He respected the Jewish viewpoint. But a riot started. Paul is arrested. And that prophecy of Agabus is fulfilled. And we'll see how Paul responds next week. Amen. Okay, Steve. <laughs>